Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. I'm sure a lot of you people out there think you guys plan these guests ahead of time. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's kismet. Sometimes the stars align. But sometimes we plan a guest for a reason, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. And I find myself reading a lot lately. I've reread the book, The Fountainhead. I've also uh, recently started Atlas Shrugged. You Ayn Rand fans out there might be familiar I mentioned that because one of her lesser-known works, the Ayn Rind Library, The Voice of Reason, Essays in Objectivist Thought by Ayn Rand. Now, I mentioned that because you always say, you, Danny and Dan, your hair's on fire, you hate the Fed. So we thought we would bring in a voice of reason today in the form of EY from SoFi. You know her from Market Call. You know her from SoFi. You know her from the Halftime Report. You know her from just about every news organization out there that needs an intelligent voice of reason. Well, she's joining us today on On the Tape. How are you, EY? I'm fantastic. I feel like the title of this episode should be Three Bears and a Bull. Turn on the mics. <laughs> well, hold on. Hold on. First, first things first. Uh, Liz Young, so that's L Y. But you have a little <laughs> thing that you call her E Y. And then for the rest of us who read the Fountainhead in high school or college, or whatever, you know, we just call her Ann Rand. I don't know. I was wondering if that's how I call her. It's Anne. not Ann. That's insulting. It's Ein. It rhymes with nine. Hold on a second. Yeah, we just declared. Liz said three bulls and a bear. How do you know? Three bears and a bull. I mean, three bears and a bull. How, how do you know? Because I listen. So to you're the I'm, what, I'm bullish. Are you bearish? Uh, no. All right, just checking. I'll make you see. The, the yeah. short guy is bullish. Yeah, you just turn that whole thing around here, and just to be really clear, Danny just closed a really cool deal, a cannabis deal. He just got done with a closing party last night, so he's here. So <laughs> whatever. So Danny might not be yeah. as sharp as, as normal Thursday. That's fine. Afternoon. I'm just saying. Right. You know what I mean? How's yeah. Brady doing? Is he? He's uh, good. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. Okay, we'll get cool. to him later. All right. Sorry about that. Yep. It's great to have Liz Young from SoFi with us. And listen, in all seriousness, your work is extraordinarily thoughtful. And before we met, 
I was a fan of your work. I'm more of a fan now for obvious reasons. And listen, The Voice of Reason, I think, is a great title for this because as we have this Jackson Hole tomorrow, the day this drops, Friday, we're going to hear from all these different characters. And you know where Danny and I sit. Dan is a little more measured. But as we get into what's going to be an interesting series of conversations, I'm sure, on the back of this, you've been extraordinarily thoughtful in your work. In the fall of last year, you were the one saying we've gone from a buy the dip market to a sell the rally market. So you've been way ahead of all this stuff. As the world looks to you now at the end of August, what are your thoughts here? Just sort of on a macro level. No pressure, right? So first of all, I love that you are trying to avoid using the buy the dip, sell the rip rhyme. I'm going to use no, it. No, <laughs> I'm just going to tell you one thing. You noticed that I was very cautious in not saying that. Yeah. I mean, you know the type of people that say that. I will spare the audience from the word that I text you from time to time. But please continue. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, okay. I think that we are in a time where the market can't decide if we're mid-cycle or late-cycle. And you watch the sector behavior, which is what I watch most closely. You watch what does well and what doesn't do well in rallies. And this last one that we had that moved from June 16th until about August 16th, you saw a bunch of stuff that would signal early to mid-cycle and then utilities, which signals late-cycle. And we've still got high energy prices. We're still worried about oil spiking again, which sends all these late cycle signals. Still worried about inflation, as we should be. But where we're at at this moment is, I think, very anticipatory of what Jay Powell, I'm going to call him Jay Powell, is going to say tomorrow. Honestly, I would have thought that we would sell off this week and then have a relief rally after he talked tomorrow. But we haven't really sold off. So now I'm afraid that we're going to sell off tomorrow when he comes out and says, I'm still hawkish. We're still hawkish. We still have to hike. We still have to fight this. Take a step back for a second, because I still don't think we know that our economy can function in a higher rate environment. We haven't really seen it yet. We've seen fits and starts, especially as it relates to the 10-year yield moving higher. Here we are again, mortgage rates hitting new highs again. You know, We're piercing that. And that tends to have a lag impact to what we see coming later. So we had this respite on the credit spreads coming in. Yields came in a little bit. I think that was the reason, one of the reasons for the surge in the market. Curious to get your thoughts on that, because it's still unproven to me you know, the proof is in the pudding if we can really get through this and going into Q4. First of all, labeling anybody as a bull or a bear, I only do that jokingly because I don't think it's fair. And I don't think that this is a time where we can be that clear cut about it. And I think what's happening right now, especially with rates, you see things like the move index, which is bond volatility. You see that spike higher. So it doesn't really make sense that equities would do well in that environment. Now, you're right. We don't know if the economy can do well in a higher rate environment as the Fed is hiking. History would tell you that it can't. History would tell you that it never really works that way. But I think the one piece that always makes me question is when people start talking about a big recession being inevitable, unavoidable, that's the moment when it becomes evadable, actually. And that we are all so braced for this terrible Armageddon situation and that we've prepped ourselves for it and here we are, and it's coming, what if it never comes? And, you know, I think, too, if you compare, to go back to the the yield curve situation, look at what happened in the first half of the year. And I know we talked about it on Market Call. We've talked about it many times. We had these couple little fake inversions on the curve, right? We, they were like, they inverted for about seven minutes, and then it stopped. Or it inverted very, very shallowly. This one is real. This one, if it does signal a recession, if it does signal something bad coming, it signals that it's coming in 2023. And that's where I fall on the, I guess, more bullish camp. 
for the rest of this year market-wise. Yeah, so the question would be, is that in the lows in June, when the S&P was down more than 20%, NASDAQ was down 30%, was that that anticipatory decline for this 2023 recession? I just don't think so, right? And so market participants got really, really bearish into that. We had a Fed that, for some reason, people interpreted some of the tea leaves, I guess, that they were likely to pivot sooner than, I guess, the markets at the time were thinking. And that's why we had that equity rally. But it is interesting. I mean, since then, yields have not let up. 10-year U.S. Treasury yield is is back here just above 3%, which we hadn't seen in a while. So I guess my point is, is that if that was like a fake inversion that we had, I don't know about that. Because in 2019, we had a very brief inversion of the 210 spread. And in 2020, you can say it was a black swan event, but we had a recession. But not caused by the same thing that the inversion was signaling. And so back to the drawdown that we saw up until that bottom in June. No, I don't think that was what was foreshadowing a terrible recession to come. I think that was what we would call a non-recessionary bear market, which is typically somewhere between 25 and 30 percent. We didn't quite get to 25 percent, but we got close enough. Isn't the average bear market, though, also in recessions 30-some percent or something like that? 35 to 45. Yeah. I just don't think there's any historical precedent for this. And I would say, I've been saying for a long time, if you want me to get bullish on the equity market, I actually want 10-year yields to move higher because that signals to me. And that's this last move we've seen kind of overall with 10-year yields moving higher in the market kind of, yeah, it had a big sell-off last couple of days. It's come back a little bit. That's a healthy cleanup. And the stock action that I'm seeing, some of the crappy names being left behind now are not rallying. If that sustains itself, that is a healthier state of the markets as far as I'm concerned. What were you means- smoking last? I mean, seriously. <laughs> what do you mean? What, what, was, what do they call that? The guns or something? I'm just what trying to be more balanced. I'm trying to be, you know, more balanced. And listen, losing so, your you're saying, so you're saying one part THC, one part CBD? You know what? I don't that's, what you're, that's what you're saying. Is that, that the right ratio? What are you doing? Our mom's listening to this. I don't need I mean, this. I'm just saying. I mean, I'm not under the influence of anything at the moment. I'm trying to be objective and say, call it like I see it. Yeah. And if I see healthier activity going on in the market, it doesn't mean the market's not going to go down. So, all right. So I'll play your reindeer game, Danny. Go Moses. ahead. So 10-year yields have gone from 2.5% in a extraordinarily quick fashion. They're now north of three. I mean, it's crazy, these moves. I got to tell you something, Demo. 10-year yields are not rallying because the economy is magically getting better. I think they're rallying because that inflation genie's out of the bag, my opinion. And although the yield curve is flattened somewhat, I would submit this is an environment where yields going lower is probably a really bad thing, and 10-year yields going Higher is a really bad thing. And you know where I learned that from? The Danny Moses I knew prior to 20 minutes ago. Listen, I'm trying to take just a microcosm of what's happening and just trying to kind of week to week. We got to kind of comment on what we're kind of seeing. But, Guy, if you think our rates are volatile, take a quick look at the German 10-year. I know. And, and uh, you know, the British 10-year. So we're recording this on Thursday afternoon. The Fed comes out tomorrow. He's speaking at Jackson Hole Palace. We all know the. Fed fund futures are telling us either 50 or 75, it's 50-50 at this point, what it's going to be three weeks, four four weeks from now. So what is he going to say that's different? I think this market has allowed him to be a little bit more hawkish than he probably potentially could have been to maintain credibility. There was other Fed governors out there saying 375 to four is kind of the target of where we are. So forth. I still believe they're not going to get there, but tomorrow is going to be a hawkish tilt. So does the market sell off on that? They're anticipating hawkish. I don't know. There's economic data also that's going to be coming out again. So 
Listen, I don't think we're out of the woods, obviously. By well, any the stretch. data gets worse before it gets better. Liz, do you agree with that, that this 15% rip in the S&P 500 over the last, call it, month and a half or so gives the Fed some cover to kind of maintain? You said September is 50-50. The CME FedWatch tool is pricing about a 60% chance of a 75 basis right, point. Right, it changes on every economic No, I know, but like if it moves towards 70, I, what I'm saying is is that, again, it really isn't about the data. It really is about the inflation readings, right? And and so at the end of the day, I mean, guys been all over this idea that the shortages as far as natural gas and the situation over there gets worse again before it gets better. And is that the thing that kind of keeps the Fed hawkish through the fall? And sorry, buddy, you're going to lose that bet as far as- Good luck. Uh, oh, I'm just telling you. You never won Liz, do you Do you buy into that? that is the equity market uh, giving the Fed a little cover here? First of all, I'm not making any $5,000 bets. I think that's what you, you should with him. You'll win. So <laughs> just pick anything. I don't think Green Bay Packers come. over under total wins. Just do something. I'll bet on the Packers irrationally all day long. Okay. So first of all, the market is pretty split between 50 and 75 at this point. I think we have to, number one, keep in mind that when they have that meeting, it's September 21st. September is the month where we double the pace of quantitative tightening. Okay, so we do this balance sheet runoff twice as big as we did before, and they are going to look at that whether or not we communicate it or not. They're going to look at that as another element of tightening. So I don't know that they have to do 75. I think the only way that we get another 75 is if inflation does not decelerate further. So the market having rallied, Although, sure, it might give them a little more clearance because it's one of the inputs into financial conditions, right? So if the market rallies, then it would look like financial conditions have loosened so that they have some more leeway to tighten. But I think what gives them more flexibility to continue tightening is the labor market and the fact that we've got – it came out today – we've got gross domestic income that's still pretty positive, not necessarily gross domestic product, but income that's pretty positive. So they have room. Last thing I'll say about this is – Moving from 75 to 50 is not dovish. 50 is still tightening. 50 is still hawkish. And if we look back on that 10 years from now, we'll say that was a hawkish Fed. There's been something else going on that's pretty interesting is that the amount of auctions, treasury auctions that are going on are, are down a lot. Like they've taken down quantitatively that amount. And if you look at the quote QT that has supposed to be going on for the last three months, it hasn't been anything. Just a slight runoff. There's been really been nothing. And what's funny about that is people say, well, look, it's good. See, it's not going to hurt us because the government's going to issue less bonds. Well, let's look ahead three, six months from now. What earnings going to look like? What are tax receipts going to look like? What is that? So you know that the budget deficit is going to grow. You know that this is a temporary little move down, improvement of budget deficit. So those are kind of the other things going on that have a direct impact, I think, on the speed at which the Fed can go and so forth. Dan, we do a show called Fast Money, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. You might be familiar with it. Mm Mm-hmm. I know Danny is. He gets tired of this. By the way, that's a running joke. Danny's <laughs> eyes, I'm sure, are rolling over. And don't do that, Danny. It's not I'm a not, I didn't do But it. I'll say this. We had Paul McCulley, who, by the way, got fantastic hair. He was on Fast Money about a week or so ago, and I asked him that exact question. I'm like, I get what you're saying. It's all well and good. I said, Paul, what nobody seems to be talking about is the fact that the Fed's balance sheet is going to start to roll up, $9 trillion balance sheet. I said, Are you not concerned about that? He goes, oh, no, not at all, because the overnight repo market suggests, and maybe he's right, I don't know, but there's north of $2 trillion looking for a home, and that balance sheet runoff will be gobbled up by all these banks with excess liquidity. Danny, I ask you, is that just flat out wrong? Because listen, I'll take him at his word, but 
I think he's underestimating the impact of this. For sure. And we've yet to see your favorite thing, guy, the reverse repo rear its head yet. And I'm sure at some point it's going to. When you start to take out that type of liquidity in the market, there's always an impact. I mean, look what's happening. Global treasuries, how those things trade. Just imagine. And now I've talked about this before. I'll put everyone to sleep, but we're moving off of LIBOR onto the SOFR, which I'm sure Liz has talked about or written about in one of her blogs. And that's an untested, quote, thing that's supposed to track basically the federal reserve overnight rate. You know what's really interesting about that guy? I was on that night, and I was like shocked that he said that. But then you have to remember what PIMCO is. Everyone talks their own book to some degree or whatever. I I was just really surprised by that answer. And one of the things, I I will say this, that Liz, since you started coming on on the tape, I think it was early 2021, and obviously Guy and, and you and me, we do Market Call. Danny, you're involved in a lot of conversations we have. When I think about who you're speaking to, I first saw you on Halftime Report on CNBC on on all different shows. But when you think about the SoFi customer in a way, we just talked, everyone's kind of talking their book a little bit. You guys lead heavily into financial literacy. That's a big part of your mission there. But you're also trying to demystify some of these big things. So when Danny, you just said you've probably written about SoFi, maybe you have, but you've probably done it in a way where you're saying, how does this affect me? How does it affect my savings? How does it affect my investment philosophy? That sort of Talk to us a little bit about how your job, you used to talk to like really fancy institutional investors in your prior life as a strategist. Now you're really trying to speak to a customer base that is coming into the, I guess, the investment world. Isn't that fair to say a little bit or no? It's totally fair. So SoFi's investor base, 60% of it, more than 60% of it is between the ages of 20 and 40. So you have to think about that just from an asset allocation perspective. If I'm talking to an investor who on average is 30 years old, they've got a really long time horizon. So I'm not telling them that they should move their money around in three to six months time. It's about making sure that you can stomach it in the meantime, because I know they're looking at their portfolios every day, which is not something that investors of that age did 20 years ago. I know they're looking at it every day. So what I have to try to do is explain to them what's happening, why it's happening, and why over the long term, it probably isn't that big of a deal. And the biggest thing in this market that we've had to do, which has it it really is more fulfilling, I think, to talk to this type of investor, at least for me, because you get to educate and you get to really connect to the actual investor. The biggest thing has been that many of them, this is the first bear market they've ever seen. It's the first one they've ever lived through and invested through. And I've said many times, your first bear market will shape you. And the first one I ever went through was 2008, 2009. I was running three departments, one of which was a small business association loan department. And we were the custodian. So we had to price these loans. Imagine how that went. We had to price these loans on a weekly basis. I will never forget that, right? And you start to pay attention to indicators the clients on the phone screaming at me about the price of the loans. I can't do anything about it. It shapes you in the sense that I am now obsessed, no matter what happens in the environment, I'm obsessed with credit spreads. I'm obsessed with debt. I'm obsessed with but watching But bringing it back to the things that some of these customers are invested in and really how to interpret it. One thing that we were doing market call earlier in the week, and I was reading a story off of FactSet, and it was about some sort of survey that some brokerage firm did about young investors who had been burned in meme stocks and crypto, and they're really pessimistic about the current environment. And you actually said, well, we just did a survey of your customer base 
ways. And you're actually getting some different data. And Danny, I know that you're really interested in this sort of the psychology of this investor. To your point, because this is the next investor, the next real big money investor, your existing investor. So talk to us a little bit about what your survey says about this age group. Yeah, so we surveyed all of our invest members and 74% of them said that they were planning to invest just as much, if not more, in the next six months, regardless of volatility that had occurred. And this was before really the big rally that happened. So it was comforting because it was like, okay, they're not scared off by it. And they're intending to keep going in this, which is a great thing to hear and see. And I think as a young investor and somebody who has that kind of time horizon, maybe they're coming around to the idea that, okay, this is just a natural part of the business cycle. But Liz, what's not natural, and you just said it yourself, you went through in 2008, 2009, the stuff that you saw. I go back to 2000. I go back, really, I was in college in 1987, so I've seen a lot of stuff. These are not normal credit spreads, and you just talked about how you're nervous about it. We know we're in uncharted territory. We know the Fed's had our back since 2009. So we have yet to see, and I know deep, and that's in the back of your mind, the average age of the Robinhood trader happens to be the average age of the people you're talking to at SoFi, right? It's 32, 33, whatever. These people don't have any basis to understand that. So it's all been one way. So how do you convey that message to these people? Like, listen, I just want you to understand, maybe you get too deep in the weeds. I want you to understand something, how a true functioning capitalist society works, because this is not how it works. So a few different ways. So when you look at one of the things that's bothered me about this market, even when we were at the lows was that credit spreads didn't blow out the way that they normally would in that time, which it sounds perverse to sit there and think, I wish things were worse. But you want to see some of those indicators get worse. So the way that you have to communicate it then is, okay, what is a credit spread? Why does it matter? It matters because it means that risk is more expensive, right? You want want to make sure that you're managing the risk. You want to know what the level of risk is out there. And they understand the word default, So if you make it into a default conversation and how that kind of ripples through an economy, then it's more understandable. What you have to wrap it then up into is this package of how do we know that it's actually done? How do we know that we had enough of a wash? And you can look back at a lot of those indicators, whether it's even stock market valuations, did the PE get low enough? Did credit spreads get high enough? I would say at this point, if we're going into a real recession, no, that stuff didn't happen yet. We didn't get low enough in PEs. We didn't get high enough in credit spreads. So the market right now is still hoping, I know hope is not a strategy, hoping hope is that, a dangerous thing. that we can somehow manufacture something Danny, you rushed less it. bad. She didn't get it. No, I mean, see, Danny, that's the problem. Sometimes you <laughs> rush things and I rush, it went I right so over excited. her head. I mean, it's so bad. Shawshank. It's Shawshank. It's uh, I have Shawshank. seen that one. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Anyway, yeah. the market. So right now, because we haven't hit those indicators, I think the market is still operating under some kind of assumption that we can manufacture something less bad than a hard landing. By the way, I tried to come in. I'm just getting so bared up right now. I came in. I swear, <laughs> I walked and I even misstated three bulls in a bear. Yeah. I'm, I'm so bullish it's right not now. Pretty. I'm so bearish right now. Right. Oh anyway, my God. Did it again. Anyway, so listen. Now we are finally starting to see price discovery on corporate debt. Yeah. We are seeing things actually start to happen, right? Stuff trading down 40 cents, 30 cents, 20 cents. And finally, some of the equity people are waking up to say, you know what? That debt's trading at 30 or 40 cents. Maybe that equity is actually worthless. So I think this cycle we're going to see, the funding that's going to... We, we've already... We talked about a couple of weeks ago about these fallen angels. S&P and Moody's downgrade these things into junk territory, corporate bonds. It is feast or famine now. It's going to happen. And I think yeah. people need to understand that. And by the way, that's a huge opportunity. Huge opportunity. You can recognize it on the long and the well, short because side. Because what happens on the other side? Rising stars. 
right? Exactly. So if you catch a falling angel, it crosses over into junk. Oh my you god! You guy, 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 you, you got to raise it. By the way, every time you guys say that, I think of the commercial. Visiting angels, the number one name in home or some damn thing, which makes my head freaking explode. So I swear to God, if you say fallen angels or something, I'm, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm just she talks telling to you, angels. And don't catch a fallen angel. Danny said it first. That's just, I'm going to leave. All right. So, guy, tomorrow, but yes, by Danny. the time our listeners are just keyed in on this, so the Fed, Jay Powell's little speech is going to be done. How do you think the markets react? We have an S&P that sold off sharply last week. It was 4% off of its highs. It's kind of trying to hold in here a little bit. We have, again, crude found a bit of a bottom right near those November highs. We have the 10-year yield back above 3%. We have the US dollar index, the Dixie, trading near, what, multiple year highs here. There's a lot of things that actually speak to me about a very vulnerable equity market. We'll talk about some of the earnings that we've seen in the last week or so, because I do think some of the high valuation kind of SaaS names, some of the things that we saw this week might be really telling. Talk to me a little bit about how you think this shakes out on the way out, assuming that it's just kind of status quo. You mentioned this earlier to me, that Neil Kashkari, the biggest dove who's ever sat on a Federal Reserve board, sounds pretty hawkish right now. He basically was read the riot act and he's gotten himself in line. By the way, the arrogance that he portrayed during that whole transitory period, I mean, he was the flag waver of transitory, made me crazy, the certainty with which he spoke. And now he's finally had his come to Jesus moment and he's figured this entire thing out. Better late than never, as they say. In terms of answering your question, I think the setup for a move lower is basically right in front of us. And obviously, we're going to know a lot more 24 hours from when we're taping this. But I'll say this. The move from the mid-June lows to the recent highest north of 4,300, I think was expected. Why do I say that? Because we talked about it when? Back in mid-June, number one, and it got to the levels we thought. But I think people, again, are misunderstanding some of the commentary coming out of this Federal Reserve and the people around it. They have pretty much marched out every single person that ever had a Fed label around them and are basically telling you how inflation is a problem. We're here to combat it. We're going to do what it takes. So I don't know what more they need to say. My sense is, given the fact that the market has rallied since really the last time you heard from Jerome Powell in earnest, it gives him ammunition to an earlier comment you made to EY from SoFi. So I think the fact that the market has rallied gives them the opportunity to be even more aggressive in their tone than they would have been maybe 500 or so S&P points Danny, what's ago. the downside of them being more aggressive? He didn't answer your question. He just said it sets it. You, you, you are not paying attention. You know, he, didn't, he said it sets it up because we had a rally into it, but we've, we're back down below 4,200. So- what did you ask him? What is I mean, the, what you, is the equity market doing? Bob Marley in like one of your You're headphones or something? Are you licking? The Guy spleef? thinks next stop is four thousand, and there's an unfilled gap at thirty eight hundred. I was saying for tomorrow. I was talking about for tomorrow. You oh. didn't answer the question I for love, tomorrow, I which is what Danny's you asked. In my grill. I love you know that, what? by the way. Yeah. I feel like I heard down for tomorrow. I heard Thank down. You. I Thank heard, you. I heard down. Okay. Thank but, you. but Liz, you can hear what they want to hear. Dan, you know this. They disregard the rest. Thank you, Paul Simon. That Wasn't that the title? I got a funny story. Can I tell a story? Oh, of course. That's what we it's do, your right? podcast guy. Have at so it. So my daughter Lily's home. She works in the city, but she's living home, right? And last night, Wednesday night, I do this because it's important to give context. There was no baseball in town. The Yankees of New York weren't playing. The Mets from Shea Stadium weren't playing. Not that I would watch them. There was no preseason football. So she sat down and said, Gigi, 
let's watch Maverick Top Gun. I'm like, absolutely. I saw it. And I mean that I'm all in for that. So she went to like Amazon Prime Video or one of those stupid, like there are a hundred of those frigging things that run across your screen. Yeah, we know. We all use them. Hula Hoop and Hulu and Roku and all that shit, right? So she came across Prime, Amazon Prime Video and she clicked on it and Maverick Top Gun and she hit it. Then you had to go to your phone or something. I'm like, this is what people your age actually do? I'm like, absolutely not. She goes, okay, you know what we should do then? I'll make Danny happy. Let's watch the big short. I'm like, absolutely not. You're such a dick. <laughs> Seriously. Do you want, I know he's watching it, by the way. I know he has. Like, he just plays with me all the time. I actually don't think. What, do you think the guy who plays him is much better looking than him or no? Oh, you're going to put me in that spot? No, of course. No, Younger. I think the yeah. real Danny Moses is just absolutely handsome off the charts. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Can we talk about, because I know it's near and dear to your client base, the student loan thing that's gone on here, right? I'd imagine most people you're talking to are in Vegas now. I mean, that was like a, that was like a, that was like a massive win of all, but I don't, you don't have to share your thoughts. This is not a political question at all. It's just back to the moral hazard issue that we all went through for the last 13, 15 years and stuff. The Fed has your back. Fed has your back. Really? All of a sudden? Those are pretty wide ranges for forgiveness, right? And these student servicing companies, some of them had already given up the ghost and transferred it back and so forth, but... To me, it's it's really nuts how this thing went down. Like yeah. quickly, it felt like I know it was planned, but it came. Oh, it didn't feel quick to us. It felt like it lasted a long time to anybody working at SoFi. But something that's interesting. This is anecdotal, but this was a few years ago. I have a friend who's in the business, and he has two little kids. And we were talking about investing and saving for college, and we were talking about tuition costs. And he was like, "You know what? I don't even have college savings accounts for them." And I was guffawed. I couldn't believe that somebody like him didn't have college savings accounts for his kids. And he said, the debt is so ballooning, the student loan debt is so ballooning that the government's going to have to do something about it. And look at what happened. It's not as if he called this particular scenario, but look at what happened. So look, I think it's good for people that it's going to benefit in the sense that it was completely imbalanced to the struggle that they were going to have due to their student debt. It doesn't really solve the problem. 
Because if you start college next year, you're still paying these huge tuition costs. You're still going to have to take loans out. So it doesn't solve the problem. It's a temporary Band-Aid that we're putting on during a time when people are already under stress. I think it's a conundrum. I'm not really sure what we were going to do about it. I think the argument is that these were non-performing loans in the first place. But still, it doesn't reduce the amount of non-performing loans that we're going to continue to have. Don't you actually think it encourages, as sick as it sounds, people to go take out more loans now that maybe would not have done it? Think about it, because we're overthinking it. Just keep it simple. If I'm thinking about getting, you know what, I'm going to get that student loan, because maybe I never have to pay it back. I think you're going to see huge growth in student loan demand as a result of this forgiveness. Well, don't you think PPP did the same thing when you think about that? I mean, corporations, they take out a lot of debt. They do a lot of stupid fucking things. Um, and yeah, but you they, couldn't they, prevent uh, COVID as it relates to a four-year no, but decision. But what I'm saying is, is that it's same thing happened to auto companies and AIG. I mean, the list goes on and on. So moral hazard's moral hazard for the first time in a long time. People under $125,000 in income got a little something. That's all I'm saying. Listen, I, mean, I, I think, I, the, you know, listen, I, I think the colleges should have to pay for some of this stuff back. But seriously, this all really started on the for-profit stuff years ago. So when I was at Front Point with Steve Eisman, I mean, he went in front of Congress, right? He testified in 2010. He wrote a check to a woman who couldn't pay back her for-profit loan. What happened was those for-profit universities, Corinthian, Apollo, ITT, this group of them, they figured out a game where they bring in a prospective student. They said, oh, take out this government loan and you can pay for your college with this. And people started to figure out this game was just a game because they couldn't get real jobs out of all these schools. Some they could, but some they couldn't. And so we started to build up losses on these loans over time. And that's where this all kind of started about, hey, we got to get forgiveness. That forgiveness to me is different. And those companies were never set up to really educate people, get them jobs. They had these income tests that were going on at the time. Can you really go earn? If you can't prove that you're going to earn, get a job after, you shouldn't be able to get the loan. Anyway, that's where this whole thing kind of started. And that was like 2000. 10, 11, when this thing really came to the forefront. And now those things are basically all gone. But that was a huge amount of the debt on the student side was from these colleges, which we could go on forever about. But. I have a question for EY, and then I have a question for Danny Moses. In order, if you may, Danny mentioned Corinthian. If I said to you, EY, Corinthian leather, what do you say quickly? <laughs> I have no idea. Bags? Yeah, of course you don't. That's a problem. <laughs> See, that in and of itself is a problem because you missed the whole Ricardo Montalban back in the day humping cars with rich Corinthian leather, number one. I'll let you Google that as I ask Danny Moses this next question, which is $1.6 with a T, college student loan debt, which is an astronomical number. Credit card debt, Danny Moses, is now north for the first time ever of a trillion dollars in this country. Now, we were talking about credit before, and I still think that's going to be the domino that's going to fall. And these numbers are getting out of control with rates going higher. I know these are things you look Good, Danny. Can you just speak to that? Yeah, people are using credit now more than cash. Dollar Tree came out with their quarter. It's called Dollar Tree now. That's a buck twenty-five, but that's a whole other story. And they're saying they're seeing high-end consumers, middle-end come to their stores, same as Walmart told us. And they're seeing a lot more credit being used than cash, right? So that is not great when rates are rising. And if you start to look at your APRs on your credit cards, start to look and see what's going on. It's going up. And God forbid you miss a payment now. It's a good thing that the CFPB still exists, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Because at least they're looking out and keeping people honest. Because, Liz, you I mean, you obviously track this stuff very yeah, well, closely. Well, so I have a question, and this is just collectively to the group. I think there have been so many people 
saying the consumer is so strong. The consumer is what's going to keep us out of a recession. There's all this cash on the balance sheet. If there's all this cash on the consumer balance sheet, why are people spending on credit cards? Is it just that we're having this K-shaped recovery like we've talked about? You've got low-income consumers who are spending on credit cards and high-income consumers who are just saving money and not using it because they don't have to. And then I have a second question that I think everybody should answer. Did you make any adjustments in your personal spending habits because of inflation? Let's go back to the credit cards. So everyone had all these rewards built up for a long time. There's so many rewards being drained right now. So ask me the one thing that I've done is I've looked to use points and whatever I have to see what's out there. That's what's going. That's one thing that's happening right now for sure. Edibles, because that's clearly what's going on during this show. Anyway, can you please buy continue. those with points? Yeah, you can buy. Sure, why not? I don't know. Ask Dan. <laughs> but anyway, it's a buy now, pay later type mindset, right? Yeah. And that's kind of where we are right now. Is it? Oh, I can pay it in a month. I'll worry about it then. I'll just go buy something. So I think it's affordability combination with people actually looking at rewards and seeing what they have to. So I think the thing about food and energy inflation right now, there's a part of the U.S. consumer where it's just not affecting. We see savings rates start to drain a little bit. We see some of the wage gains kind of moderate a little bit. And so again, it really does feel like a slow moving train wreck if you think about it. The one thing you mentioned earlier, Liz, though, I think has got to pop is this employment situation. I mean, we are still at 3.6%. We are at that pre-pandemic low, which was a 40 year low. And, you know, I was in an elevator this morning. I was going up to a VC-backed fintech company and all these 20-somethings were roaring into the elevator. It was nine o'clock. And one of the guys looks at one of his coworkers and says, there's a lot of people back on the streets and that's really good. But I can't tell. Half of them look like they're going to yoga class. They're in their athleisure and stuff like that. People are not working. The productivity that we are seeing by the amount of people that are employed and what the managements have learned in the last two years about this hybrid work model, it is going to be nasty for these people who think that they can just sit on these really great jobs with these really great wages. That's coming to a theater near you. And I've been talking to a bunch of my friends who run companies who've been doing nothing other than expanding over the last, let's call it three or four years. And if they haven't made cuts yet, this is the first chop that they take is to jobs. It's just that simple. So we've had some of the bigger companies do it in tech over the last few months. That's the one thing to me, man. I just think when that unemployment rate starts to tick up a little bit, that's when I think a lot of these things start to snowball. And so if we're already talking about savings not being used, or at least savings rates being drained and then consumer credit ticking up at a time where we've seen rates go up so dramatically. Guy, it just seems like a really, what would you call that? A what what brew? Uh, That would be a witch's brew, in my opinion. Halloween coming up, by the way, if you're looking for a costume, always a great one to go to, a standby, a staple, as they say. I'm going to effort and attempt to answer EY's question about the U.S. consumer and balance sheet and everybody I will tell you this if you watch CNBC's Fast Money or watch Market Call or listen to the On The Tape podcast, what I have said religiously now for years is I never underestimate the consumers want to spend. It's their ability that I've always questioned. And the reason why people say that on TV so often, because it's a lazy bullshit answer that nobody ever pushes back on because they don't have the data behind. And when you see now $1 trillion with a T, once again, of credit card debt in the United States, a record number with some absurd amount of new credit cards being opened since April, you have to say to yourself, things aren't that good. Oh, by the way, somebody just won bingo. 
If you want more proof positive, Danny Moses, I just saw a headline about some tsunami, and I hate the word because I can't spell it. I know I think it starts with T, but I don't understand really why. People not paying their energy bills, 20 million homes in the United States. And if you don't think that's out there around the corner, that's something we should be watching as well. And we won't even talk about what's going to happen in Europe over the next couple of months, Danny. Listen, we are stuck right now, I think, just obsession with the Fed and everybody is so keyed in. They're not taking a step back. There are layoffs happening every day. Is it horrendous? No, but it's there. That's a lag impact, obviously, on the economy. All the things we're kind of talking about, I think all of us in this room know there's going to be a reset of some kind, whether it's stock picking certain stocks. I mean, I'm just going to go back. I know Dan hates talking about the meme stocks. I'm just going to, I'm not going to call them meme stocks. But when you see Peloton act the way it does today, it gives me hope. So they come out, they announce their deal with Amazon. They're going to sell their bikes on Amazon next day, puke a quarter. They have $1.2 billion in cash left. That's what they lost in this quarter, right? So that's not sustainable, right? When you start to see those type things occurring, Bed Bath & Beyond, they're pricing this incredibly expensive debt that literally is coming in. It makes you, you know that the equity is worthless. Like those are th- So anyway, I'm getting hopeful now because I'm starting to see these stocks act much more rational in a way, and the money should leave those and go somebody's quality. That being Seeing said- the meme stocks act more rational? Yeah, because they're coming. I'm saying they're actually starting to fade. They are definitely deflating here. They're losing their sponsorship, right? Yeah. Oh, we scared the shorts away. Great. Now there's no one left to buy the stock, but that's great. My, my point is that when we pull all this back, we go into a fundamental tape in Q4 in the next three to four months, the market will come in. Because if, once you start trading on fundamentals and get past the obsession with the Fed, that's when I think we're going to finally have, a, and it'll be a healthy sell-off. I know that sounds horrendous, but it'll be a healthy sell So stab back down to previous lows or a higher low? I mean, I think we're going to pierce back through 36, 3,500. I mean, I personally think that, but there was something that happened this week, and, and Guy and I talked about it earlier today on Market Call, but I think it's a really good topic here. And Michael Burry tweeted this out earlier. So he is Michael J. Burry on Twitter. Subscription software and hardware revenue models revolutionized the way business is done and made for higher multiples in the market. But this means many businesses will show weakness later in a downturn. As we enter the fourth quarter and the lap first quarter, this should become more apparent. So I think it's really interesting. On the week, we had Salesforce.com. This is a $160 billion market cap company with $30 billion in sales. Their co-CEO, Brett Taylor, said something about more measured buying. So think about who their customers are. These are large corporations of all sorts who buy licenses for this software as a service here. But if they're starting to lay workers off, we're going to see companies like this start to tell us that first. And to Burry's point is that we're also starting to see valuations that don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. On the flip side of that, so Salesforce is down on a disappointing guide. It was down, I think, at its lows about 6%. That was about $10 billion in market cap. And then here's a stock, Snowflake, that has $10 billion in gains today. It's up 20% as we speak because they beat and guided higher. There's a company that now trades at 30 times sales this year, 20 times next. And it's still down 50% from its all-time highs last year. So again, Guy, lay it out a little bit. What are you queuing off here when you see these two companies and you see these two directions of the stocks, you see the differing valuations here? What do you want to extrapolate here, especially as we get through the stretch here for Q3? And we're going to start to probably get some pre-announcements, especially with the way the dollar is right here. Snowflake is a stock story. And it happens to be a good one over the last 24 hours. Salesforce comes out CRM is an economy story. And that's the one you should be focused on. Now, if you're trading stocks, doesn't matter. You don't really care necessarily. One stock is up big. If you owned it, that's really great. But if you're trying to do second derivative work 
And look at what Salesforce said. What's the word you used? Customers are now more measured. That's code for basically saying there's a slowdown in sales. I mean, let's just put it out there. And that's what they're seeing. But it didn't start there. I mean, we heard from Bill McDermott a month or so ago, and he started this train rolling. So again, these are great companies. Slowdowns are natural. I just don't think the market is taking it into full consideration what it means. And I've said this now a dozen times. The Microsoft quarter a few weeks ago was not a great quarter. I'll say it again if you didn't hear me the first time. The Microsoft quarter was not a great quarter. As a matter of fact, that day the stock closed at 255. Within 15 minutes after reporting, it was trading 242. The only thing that saved that stock that day was they came out, said during the call that they did not see a slowdown in demand, which may be true. Good for them. That's coming to that same theater that Dan mentioned a while ago. So the stock reaction was great. The Apple reaction to their quarter was great, but I'll say this, and I'm not an Apple hater, so please don't at me on Twitter. I'm really not interested anymore. I will indulge you. I will eviscerate you if you come at me because that's my want to do. But again, the Apple quarter was not great. We are now talking about a company, forget the name for a second, that's trading at 26 times next year's numbers that has just rallied 34% in two months with low single digits revenue growth and mid-single digits earnings growth. You tell me. Oh, and by the way, for you bingo players, again, that had it twice, 2% year-over-year revenue growth for Apple is a unmitigated disaster. <laughs> there you go, Dan. Well, I have a couple things. Let's broaden out. I'm not going to talk about individual names, but here's what I think we're going to start to hear because this happens in phases. So a company that, if they know they're trading at an inflated multiple and they don't want their stock to get hit, but they have to engage in layoffs because they're trying to cut costs, you're going to hear about what's called restructurings or divisions that got moved around or product lines that got changed, which is just layoffs disguised as a restructuring. So it's going to be all about the messaging. And then what I think we start seeing is a pickup in M&A activity, particularly in certain sectors that have gotten killed. But there's a difference between M&A activity for strategic reasons and M&A activity for financial reasons. So you start to see M&A for financial reasons, which is more of an M&A rescue plan, right? So I think there's a, a few phases of this before, if we do hit a big recession and really hit the skids, a few things will happen before that. This is the problem with rates moving higher into a slowing economy. M&A explodes when rates are low because we know the financing costs and the leverage that goes into it. So that's going to be much harder to overcome. As it relates to Salesforce and how it reacts, yes, they announced a $10 billion buyback. I think it was expected. That's not what you want to see when you own a growth company. It's great. It's nice. It's not what you want to see when you when you know in growth company. And to Guy's point on Apple, that was always the obsession for a long period of time, right? It was never a crazy expensive name. People wanted to extract value. What are you going to do with your cash? I think Apple for a while said we're going to grow our business. And then go ahead. Dan. I said, you know what, Danny? When I saw that headline, when they in the, in their press release, Salesforce was like, we're excited to announce this. When you look back, one of the first things that Tim Cook did in 2012 when he took over Apple, rates were really low. They had a shit ton of cash. Okay, here was a company that was still innovating and growing in a strong secular sort of shift that was smartphones, and they started their buyback. When Ruth Porat went over to Google, I think, what was it, guy, 2014 or something like that, similar sort of 
situation started to buy back their stock. Microsoft started doing it, I think, in the early aughts. And it was just different times. When you see a company where the stock is down the way it is, and they're supposed to, there's no organic growth there. And listen, they bought Slack last year. They bought, I mean, they bought company after company. Benioff, the CEO of that company, he started at Oracle. He was one of their biggest salesmen. He said, that's just a big old fashioned roll up. There hasn't been organic growth at Oracle in a long time. So that just signified what that company is. It's no longer a growth company. They're going to have to financial engineer it. And the point I was just making about Apple and Microsoft and Google, very different situations, I think, and a very different rate environment. AEY, have you ever seen people play on those slack line things? They connect them between trees. I mean, they're like freaking acrobats, like they're kids in the neighborhood that do this shit. It's unbelievable. Like when you glide through a jungle? It's like a big rubber band they huck between trees. Can we call that a trapeze artist? What, what, what do we call that guy? Like when you hold you hold onto the thing and you glide through trees? No, that's that's a zip line. I mean, it's this is some people listening know exactly what I'm talking about. Very few. <laughs> you know, one of the things, by the way, that I look forward to, I look forward to a lot of things. I look forward to waking up in the morning at my age. That is a win. I put that in the win column check. One day I won't, by the way, and I won't even know it, but that's probably for another podcast. But you put out your piece every Thursday. It's wonderful. But I will tell you, and I know this to be true, there are nights when you sit around with your feety pajamas on thinking, how am I going to piss guy off tomorrow? You don't have to admit it. I know it to be true. I will tell you that Journey is one of the worst bands in the history of mankind. (laughs) I have one song on my 700 now 65 song Spotify playlist, that's Lights. And that song is marginal at best, but I thought I had to put it in because it pays homage to San Francisco. With that said, the note you put out about China, I mean, what's going on in China? Separate ways. Well, I mean, it made me, again, talk about my head exploding. And I know you did it on purpose. You can say I'm completely self-absorbed. That's true doesn't mean that I'm not right. So talk to us about your note on China and all things China, because it actually was extraordinarily good. So first of all, I I did think of you, but only because I wasn't on market call today. So I figured you might not even see this one and it wouldn't irk you as badly. No, it irked me. And I really wanted to use it. So what I did in this week's note was, first of all, we're so obsessed with the Fed, right? I'm kind of tired of being obsessed with the Fed. So I just wanted to talk about something else. That was part of it. But the other part of it is we're obsessed with monetary policy just as a globe. And here we are as the biggest economy in the world worried about tightening. And we've got the second biggest economy in the world loosening and stimulating. And as I was writing it, I started to debate with myself about which one had it right and which one had it wrong. And if you think about what China did coming into this or even through the pandemic, they didn't throw as much liquidity at it as we did. And if you look at what I did in the note, I talked about M2, the money supply. Our money supply ballooned, which we all know. China's didn't move very much. And their argument was, we didn't do that because we didn't want to drive inflation. We don't want to have this inflationary problem. Okay. But now they're in this pretty big growth slowdown and they've got a completely plateauing, if not crumbling, property market. So they're dealing with a different set of problems. You look at the U.S. and it's like, well, but we have really low unemployment. Factory production is still okay. We're not in this terrible recession. So maybe we did it right. Can we tighten and get out of it? My argument is we can't both have done it right. One of us screwed it up. And I don't know which one yet. We're going to find out probably in the next six months or so. But one of us screwed it up. But I wanted to just kind of draw the parallels, show people 
what's so different about each of these central banks? And then how do you invest in that environment? At this point, I am not a China bull. I am not an EM bull. I think that they've got a lot of things to work out there. I'm also not a Europe bull. But you have to know what's going on around the world to really understand it as an investor. Geopolitical risk, we talk about it, has been underpriced for a long time. That's more economic, but geopolitical risk associated with Taiwan and everything like that. But that's the one thing that's underappreciated. And you just said the obsession of the Fed. When you dig your head out of not your head, people dig their head out of like obsession with the Fed and look around, it's not pretty. And there are a lot of moving parts. I mean, higher commodity prices, right? At the same time that things are slowing, you have crazy things that are happening right now. And that just is not a great recipe, I think, for what's ahead. So we'll get past this stuff tomorrow and then we'll get past the next Fed meeting. But to Dan's point, if I start to see Fed fund futures start to price in less or 50 or even down to 25 at some point in the future, to me, it's like, why did they do that? And they're doing it because they're starting to see things come in Really hard. It seems like an unmitigated disaster over there. She's got this, you know, he's up for re-election. He already named himself premier for life or whatever. Here's a headline, though. This is as they are easing that China shuts down EV charging stations. When you think about that and you think about this move that they've had towards changing their electrical grid, but because they have a heat wave, we all have a heat wave, we all have some constraints on electricity and energy in general right now. Isn't that kind of like crazy to think about? They've been pushing their citizens to do EVs and now you can't charge them. So that one seems like a crazy mess to me. And I'll just say this. You saw the headlines. Guy's all geeked up. He's getting in line at his local Apple store right now. You know, Apple's going to introduce their next 14 or the iPhone 14 or whatever. You saw a headline that some of the production after the initial production is going to be in India. I mean, so we're seeing the reliance on China unwind right now. And I think the more we see see that, the greater the likelihood we have some sort of dust up. And so, Guy, just curious thoughts here, because last night, Tim on our show said he declared globalization is dead. Is globalization dead? And what does it mean for our economy? Is this a good thing? Is You saw Intel cut this deal with Brookfield. We know that the CHIPS Act is incentivizing our chip makers $52 billion worth to kind of onshore some of these things, create some fabs here. Thoughts? If globalization is dead, and I'm not suggesting that it is, but Tim's entitled to his opinion, you are going to be wishing we had 8.5% inflation. That's what you're going to be wishing for. That's going to be like, oh my God, remember when inflation was 8.5%, saying it in a hopeful way that we could somehow get back there. So I don't think it's dead. I think it's changing. Clearly, things have been going on to necessitate exactly that, but it's no way dead. And listen, you know how I feel. In the fall, I talked about geopolitical risk being the number one thing that nobody was talking about. We talked about Russia, Ukraine. That happened. We thought it would be post-Olympics. It happened midway through. I'm surprised the China-Taiwan situation hasn't basically accelerated more than it I'm not wishing for it. I just thought it would happen quicker than it has, but I still think something's going to happen there. None of this, by the way, is particularly bullish for the equity markets. And the fact that we don't talk about Russia, Ukraine anymore doesn't mean it's still not going on. And, you know, that situation doesn't resolve itself overnight as well. And the food inflation that you're dealing with now, that's basically a lot of it is predicated on what happened in Ukraine. That one, I could absolutely say Putin's inflation, because in terms of food, that's what's going on. Ukraine being the fourth largest commodity country in the world. So globalization dead? No. If it is dead, buyer beware. A lot of you have come to not only expect, but yearn for what we call a rot, a rip off the tape, a Danny Moses time where he basically rants. Prior to Danny's rot, I'm going to do a G-Swizz rot here. I will say that The Sopranos 
to this day, is one of my favorite shows of all time. I can sit and watch Sopranos episode and be enthralled by it, knowing every line of every show. No doubt EY from SoFi has never seen it. That's for another show. But I will tell you, this is where they jumped the shark. And fortunately, they jumped it in the finale of the last show when they played that shitty song, Don't Stop Believing, in the diner. Once again, Journey sucks. With that, Danny Moses. That's your rot? I love that. That's my rot. The floor is yours. So I always search SEC websites. I try to find something like, because I figured they'd come out. Can I tell you something? Yeah. You must be a freaking ball at parties. Listen to me. This is my bio. My name's Danny Moses. I got great hair. I always search SEC websites (laughs) on Friday nights. If you're out there and interested, I mean, oh my God. Yeah. Perhaps you see me in such things as sec.gov and .org. So I start searching because I'm obsessed with Barry Diller and Alex von Furstenberg and David Geffen, and nothing has happened on the Microsoft Activision. So I look all the time. I mean, it was April. The last we heard of anything was April, right? So I'm like, oh, let me look around. So I'm going on the, I'm going on the site. And I'm like, I find this quiz on this investor.org on the SEC website. I'm like, what's this? Take an investor quiz. I'm thinking maybe they're trying to educate the retail investor and let you know what's going on. So I go on this quiz, and there's all there are 10 questions about, oh, an index fund is better than a, than a mutual fund because passively managed funds are better than active because. And I'm like, hold on a second. 10 questions that BlackRock obviously authored. Like, I mean, when I read it, I'm like, okay. So then I'll start to, then I conspiracy, whatever. So then I said, I'm going to come up with my quiz on what I would ask retail investors. So my rot is the 10 questions that I would ask. Now, I know we're going to put in our notes, we'll put this .org, and you can read the 10 questions and put yourself to sleep on their end. But my 10 questions are the following. You guys ready? One, should you rely on Wall Street sell-side research for your investment decision? These are pretty much you know, rhetorical questions, but the answer is obviously no. Does a stock split actually increase the fundamental value of a company? The answer is no. Is it wise to ignore fundamentals when choosing an investment? The answer should be no. But again, none of these things are on there, right? When the bonds of a company trade below 60 cents on the dollar... Should you be concerned that the equity of that company might be worthless? Footnote, bond price, Bed Bath & Beyond, 30 cents. Question, should you be concerned? I would think so. Five, is it better to make investment decisions based upon tweets from CEOs, large shareholders, or should you do your own work? We know the answer to that question. Do you have any idea what a 10Q, a 10K, or an 8K is? The answer is obviously for the majority of people, no. Do you know how to track insider buying and selling? And do you have any idea what a 10B51 plan is? These are the type of questions. I'm going to keep going, Liz. I got three more. All right. <laughs> Thank God. Stick around. <laughs> oh, come on. In order to get away with insider trading, is it necessary to be rich enough to line the pockets of politicians and hire the best lawyers? Yes, obviously it is. Is PFOF, payment forward flow, a stock symbol, or is it pursuant to a bookie that already knows the score of a game before he sets the line? See Ken Griffin's real estate holdings. And number 10, do you think the markets are structured in a way that over a long period of time, institutional money managers will outperform the retail investor? And the answer to me is yes, because we know how this game is set up, Liz. So those are the 10 questions that will never show up on an SEC website that I wish we get on the show, we try to educate the retail investor because we want them to get smarter and make better decisions. And I think you probably don't like how long it was, but maybe you agree with some of those questions that I would ask. Liz, wouldn't you ask these exact questions? I think I, think I passed at least. Yeah. At least with I think you 80%. got 10 out of 10. Exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, I would ask some of those questions. I think some of them were a little leading, if I'm being honest, Fair. you know, the horse yep. to the pond or something. But yeah, I mean, those are important questions to ask, right? How do you analyze something? What stuff should you think about? What should you pay attention to? Something that I just talked about in my last podcast was... 
you have to purposely seek out information that is different than what you believe, right? You have to purposely seek out a contradicting idea or argument and make sure that it doesn't make a ton of sense because sometimes I'll tell you what, it does, right? And then you have to rethink, you have to go back to the drawing board and do your own. Wait, you have a competing podcast to us? I didn't say competing, oh, did really? I? So what is it called? It's called The Important Part. It's called The Important Part. So follow it. Guy, will you head down to your, your local podcast store, your favorite podcast well, store? Well, it's funny and, you say and, that because it, you know, it is Thursday night. We're doing this. I was actually planning on going to the local Apple podcast store. It's one in Randolph, I think, right next to a Chipotle Mexican grill. Looking forward to it. Well, this one's free, if that helps. So, Danny, great job with that rot. Um, really? David Letterman's wait, 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 producers. <laughs> it was a top 10 list. Oh, is that what he was going with as a top 10 list? Whatever, Dan. You know, are you high? I'm sick and tired of this. <laughs> I saw you drink your Comos tequila in here in a bottle. I know what's in that. Thing. Liz is only doing this for the Comos tequila. Okay, yeah. fair enough. Right. Who listens to Smart List? Let's just wrap it up with bye. Letterman's staff is on line five. Oddly enough, Gary Gensler is on line six for you. So well done by you with that rot. But before we get out of here, I think people always want to get to know our guests just a little bit. So, EY from SoFi, we knew you grew up in the breadbasket of the United States, Wisconsin. I love Wisconsin. As I've mentioned a number of times, I got my ass kicked in Wisconsin once. Nobody seems to know what that is, nor do you, by the way, which is fine. But just talk to us. Give us sort of the 30-second EY from SoFi behind the curtain, unplugged, those types of things. Behind the curtain and unplugged. I mean, yeah, I grew up in Wisconsin. I am always through and through a Midwest girl. If you talk to me two beers in, you'll hear my accent a lot stronger. I don't know. I mean, I love this business. I love being in this business in New York City because it gives me a perspective of crazy people and I get to maintain the groundedness of the Midwest and look at it through that lens. And it's honestly, it's really fun. It's really fun to do. Well, I appreciate that little synopsis. And by the way, when you said crazy people, you look directly at me when you said it, which is fine. I take that as a compliment. But we're going to play a little speed round because that's what we do. So I'm going to say a word. You're going to basically blurt out. Don't think, by the way, if you hesitate for even a second, I'm moving on. So you ready? Danny, I'm going to need some. All right, let's do it. Ready? Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Here we go. And a couple of beers. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Molitor. Number four. Well done. Aaron (laughs) Rodgers. Number 12. Come on. (laughs) I mean, it's just a number thing now. Okay, I'll play your reindeer game. George Bamberger. No idea. Of course you don't. Here's one for you. This is going sort of deep. Ray Nitschke. Oh, I feel like I should... I was going to say Packers, and then I got confused if maybe it was a hockey player, but yeah. You know what? I like it. It sounds like a hockey player, but you got it right, Packer. <laughs> got yep. it right the first time. Yep. Um, here's one for you. Another one. Brad Cooper. Bradley Cooper? You mean the Bradley Cooper? Well, I, I know him. I call him Shallow. Brad. There you go. Uh, Lady Gaga. Uh, weird. <laughs> Your friend group. Well, hold on. You just went and saw Lady Gaga last week in concert. What I love about her is that she's unapologetically weird. Yeah. Oh, Guy guy doesn't love that word weird, though. Guy, what do you think of when you think of weird? The weird thing about weird is actually the word itself is weird. It's that whole I before E except after C unless sounding like way is a neighbor and slay, if you recall. Weird does not fit under any of those things. It's weird. 
Well, listen, it's been our sincere pleasure to get to know Liz over the last couple of years. She's been a great contributor with everything that we do on Risk Versal Media. I think you first came on in the first half of 2021 on On The Tape, and we got to know just kind of the way you think about markets, the way you think about investing, the way you think about monitoring the economy. You know, we take a lot of time and effort to kind of separate all of those rather than think of them as a monolith. And it's been really, Guy and I have had a whole heck of a lot of fun doing Market Call with you on Thursday. So it's always fun, Liz, to have you on the tape. We did this IRL um, and we hope you will come back. So thanks a lot. Of course. Of course. I've loved working with you guys too. And you know what? You've made me a better investor. I love I love the bear takes. There you go. I'm, I'm trying to transition. This is not going to happen probably <laughs> as quickly as I would like. I, I can't. I'm, I try to become bullish. I really do. I try to come in and do it. And by the way, what we do have in common now is my son's in Madison. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to experience the Wisconsin thing. It's unbelievable. What, yeah. what a great state. Yeah, anyway. it's amazing. Yeah. Good spirit there. All right, Liz Young, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.